The other night I had a dream and I found myself with Kent Penner and Dave Scott. <laughs> we found ourselves sitting beneath a cherry blossom tree just outside the celestial city. So we were uh, obviously on the other side and we got to talking with one another, had a good time talking about our time on earth. And then an angel approached us and he was bringing with him a woman that had trials and tribulation uh, written all over her garments. And the angel brought this lady to Kent Penner and said, uh, Kent, this is the lady you must marry for a certain time period. And we're all looking at each other like, why? <laughs> and the angel replies and says, well, you see, when Kent Penner was a little boy, there was a little bug on the ground and Kent Penner stepped on it. <laughs> and so for his punishment, he has to marry this lady that is basically going to be a trial to him for a while. So Kent gets up and kind of is like, well, I don't know what to do now. She's hanging on him. And then uh, Dave Scott and I are going, well, I hope that doesn't happen to us. And lo and behold, another angel comes and approaches us. Again, with a similar looking person, trials and tribulations are written all over her garments. And the angel is coming up and saying, uh, Dave Scott, you must marry this lady. And we're going, why? What did he do? Well, you see, when Dave Scott was a little boy, there was a little bug on the sidewalk, and Dave Scott stepped on that bug. And so for his punishment, he has to marry this lady. Well, now those two are off uh, in mournful situation. And I'm still under the cherry blossom tree, enjoying the weather and anticipating my entrance into the celestial city. And all of a sudden, another angel appears. But this time with Suzanne. Radiant, beautiful, I mean, just amazing. And the angel comes up and says, uh, Kent, you must marry Suzanne. And Dave and Kent are like, what? We know Kent. We heard him preach. He's not that good. We know his life. We know his father. We know his family. He must have done something wrong. And the angel then turns to Dave, Scott, and Kent and says, well, you see, when Suzanne was a little girl, <laughs> she stepped on one of God's little creatures. And so for her punishment, <laughs> well, that is a joke. I actually didn't have that dream. But, but we do know in heaven, there is no marriage except for the marriage of the Lamb. And we also know that we will be held accountable for the things that we do on earth, right? Maybe not stepping on a bug, <laughs> but we are going to be held accountable for how we handled God's word and how we shared it with others. And so in James chapter one, last week, we demonstrated that we are going to be tested. Our faith is going to be tested. And we took a look at each of the scriptures, the verses in James chapter one, and it revealed to us like a treasure map, verses that showed us as we go through our trials that we really need to rely on God's word. 
and in that first part of James chapter 1, we know that our faith is faith in one God, and that that one God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who is the son of God, who is God. That's what our faith is built around. And there are people out in the world that don't believe that. They believe in other gods and other man-made structures. But in chapter 1, verse 2, James tells us that we should consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so I just wanted to show this slide so that you could actually see what I was talking about last week. The word for test in the Japanese Bible to test one's faith is tamesu, and it actually is made up of two parts, like I had introduced last week. It's the part of the word and the part of a formula or equation. So as we were looking through James and to see what our testing would be all about, we could see that it would always point us back to the word of God. So I, I have some slides from last week's presentation. We're just going to go quickly through them so we get an understanding really quickly of the test that we went through. So our faith is in Christ. Our faith is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And now I want to take a look at the test that we went through really quickly. In verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And in Jeremiah 8, verse 9, it says, The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? See, we have to ask God for wisdom. And the wisdom that he gives us is what? It's the word, right? We saw that last week. Then in verse 8, we saw that he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is a, a picture that is painted of someone that doesn't believe solely in the word of God, but is believing in the word of God and also believing in their own treasures and their own ideals and their own ideas. But in Psalm 119, 113, and 14, it says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Again, your law is the word of God. And you are my hiding place and my shield, I hope, in your word. Again, we're pointed back to the word. So James is confirming that again in this little treasure hunt that we're going through. The next verse we looked at was, And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. This is the description that James is painting of a rich man that relies on his wealth, but not on the word of God. That is so fleeting his riches are fleeting and in isaiah 40 verse 8 it paints the same picture the grass withers the flower fades but the word of our god will stand forever again it's the word that stands forever even though everything else fades away and perishes then in verse 12 blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which god has promised to those who love him and we point back to John 6, verse 68, Simon Peter answering the Lord, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. So that crown of life is given to us through the word of God. So we're back to the word. Who else would we go to? Only Jesus as the words of eternal life. 
Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And we went back and took a look at Matthew 4, where Jesus was taken into the desert and being tempted by the devil. But Jesus lays the groundwork for the test, and he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, we're brought back to the word. And then in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And the psalmist writes, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Again, we're pointed back to the word. And then in verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And in John 1, 1 through 4, we read that Jesus was in the beginning, and he was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So we see that the Word itself is the light for men. In verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the Word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James is just explicitly pointing out that he brought us forth by the word of truth. Then again in 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So the word is the way, the truth and the life, we get that through the word and that saves our souls and others. And then in verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Again, we're pointed back to the word. So over and over and over, we're just getting this reinforcement of the word is our faith. Our faith is based on the word. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Again, this is pointing to the perfect law that is the word. And then finally, the last verse in James chapter 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And Psalm 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? Or how can a person keep their way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Again, we're pointed back to the word. So this is the kanji that I was illustrating, that as a believer, a person that believes in truth and has trust of the Savior and trust in God's word, this is the kanji that is used. It's shinjiru or shinja or shindai. These words are made up of two parts, a person plus the word. And in the Bible, in John chapter one, verse one, it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So God, if you were to be a believer, you would think naturally that a person standing next to God like you'd have a kanji of God, a person standing next to God, that would be the believer. 
or if you were a Buddhist, it would be, you know, nothingness, and you'd have a person next to nothingness, or if you had some other religion, you'd have that image of that religion. It's pinnacle peace as the part, and you'd have the man standing next to it, and that would represent faith, right? That would represent belief. That would represent something you trust. But in this case, it's the word. And there's only one document in the world that is actually legitimately says that the word is God. A man is standing next to the word. How appropriate is that? That's a perfect illustration of faith. And it's a perfect illustration of believing and truth. So a man that lives by God's word, the word that is from the one and only God and his son, Jesus Christ, that person is a true believer. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 13, it says he was clothed with a robe dripped in blood and his name is called the word of God. It's amazing how it really illustrates that picture really well. You know, when you sit down and you ask a child to, to draw out a house anywhere in the world, they're all going to pretty much draw the same image. It's going to be, you know, a roof and a box and a window and a door. No matter where you go, that's a universal picture. A universal picture in China and Japan for the word is this character here. And the universal picture for a man is the part showing the man. So when we as Christians say, to be a true believer, you must believe in God's word, you put those two together, and now you have an illustration for the Japanese church, for the Chinese church, Chinese believers, that you are a believer and you want to walk out your life in that way. In James chapter 1, we illustrated that, uh, that it's really important for us to make sure that we understand that God's word is the foundation of our faith and that Jesus is the word. In James chapter 2 now, we shift over to we are the ones that have God's word. But now, James chapter 2 is saying, and these are the instructions on how I want you to take it out to the world. And you're going, huh, wait a second, I thought this James chapter 2 was all about godly living and all this kind of stuff and what you should and shouldn't do. Well, I'm going to step through this in kind of a Kent Cisco way to illustrate how we should be bringing the gospel to the entire world. And I think we can see that illustrated here. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, the Lord of glory, what's interesting about that is that Jesus is now in heaven, right? He is actually in glory. And our Lord Jesus Christ, we're holding faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what was the very last thing that God told us to do, or Jesus told us to do, when he ascended into heaven, going into glory? That was the Great Commission, right? And the Great Commission is what were we supposed to do with that? We were supposed to take God's word, right, to the nations, creating disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and giving them the word, right? So let's go ahead and proceed into chapter 2 uh, gingerly and see if we can see exactly how God wants us to present his word. 
James chapter 2, verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, pause, we have to stop here, because wait a second, what do I have? I have a gold ring. What do I have? Okay, they're not shabby. They may not be the best or fine clothing, but it's decent enough. You've welcomed me into your assembly. But what does a gold ring and fine clothes represent? Do we have any pictures of this anywhere in the Bible? Is there any description of someone receiving a gold ring and receiving fine clothes? Well, let's take a look at Genesis 41, 41 through 43. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee, and he set him over all the land of Egypt. So this picture, we're starting to kind of get this idea that a gold ring and fine clothing is somebody that has authority. It's not just, you know, uh, someone that got married. It's actually somebody that has some authority and we're admiring this person. Now let's take a look at the next part here. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Again, this is an interesting image. James has selected this illustration of someone coming into the church, a rich man and a poor man. Well, what is that assembly in the first place? That's an assembly like this here. It's an assembly that is gathered together that is holding the faith. They're the ones that actually have the ability to distribute it to everyone, right? And yet, and these two people come into the building. One has authority and one is shabbily dressed. And we tell the one that is rich, oh, hey, come over here and we favor them and we show partiality to them. But to the other one, we say, oh, you sit down here, uh, you, you sit at my feet, or you stand over there, be a wallflower. This is not the way that God wants us to present the gospel. God wants us to be impartial because that's the way he is. So let's take a look at the story of the prodigal son really quickly in Luke chapter 15, verse 21 through 24. And this is when the prodigal son has received all this wealth from his father and then gone off to a distant land and squandered everything that he had from his father and used it for all kinds of vileness. And now he's filthy, right? He's, this is the guy that's actually all dirty. This is the guy that's not wearing the nice clothes. 
And this is the guy that decides to come back because he knows, hey, at church, those people were nice to me. Those people are the good people. Oh, if I only could go back to them. The prodigal son is saying, if only I could go back to my father, I would have a better life than the way I'm living right now. So if we read here, now the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. This is a picture of a dirty person that has now come back to his family. And the family then takes him to a high status, the highest status, which is putting a ring on his finger and putting a robe on him, putting the fine clothes on him and giving him that status. This is somebody that has repented of where they were at, the dirty man, right? And he's come and repented. And because of his repentance and his new status as a poor man in God's sight, someone that has humbled themselves and said, yes, I was a sinner. I am a sinner. Please forgive me. And in that state, the church and God can come around that person and elevate that person, right, to a good standing within the community. Now this person has the authority. What authority does this person now have? This person now has the authority to share their testimony because what are they holding? God's word. They're now a believer. They received that blessing from the church. They've received that blessing from God's word, that covering, that ring, the authority to preach God's word. In James 2, 6 through 11, it says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now that seems awfully odd to use those two. Do not commit adultery and do not murder. Those would be easy enough for most people, I would think, to obey. And it seems like, yeah, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That also seems easy enough to obey. But from Abraham's descendants came the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes. And what were their actions like? Well, they're clearly illustrated in a man named Saul. And what was Saul doing? Saul never once, as far as we know, committed adultery. But what did he commit? Let's look at Acts 26, 9 through 11. And is this not a picture of what we just read? Saul is giving his testimony to the king. He's in chains and he's giving his testimony. He's saying, 
So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. You see, he was wearing the ring. He was wearing the fine clothes. He was going around from community to community. He was going in to the synagogues. He was going into where the assemblies were meeting, where the Christians were meeting. But also, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. This is a picture we see here in James. He's saying, you're showing partiality to rich people, and you're not showing love and kindness to the dirty person, the man that comes in with the shabby clothes. And we find ourselves, even in our generation, I watch movies and you see Tom Cruise or you see Matt Damon or you see some of these guys that are, are really excellent actors. And if I saw them come into church, would I show them favoritism? Would I run up to them? Absolutely. I'd probably just flip over backwards, ask for their autograph, you know, and have them sit in the best places, right? And then if I saw a shabby person, I wouldn't even notice them. It wouldn't even be part of my peripheral vision because I'd be looking just at that actor. But guess what those actors are doing? They're blaspheming Jesus' name every day. Those actors are not followers of Christ. And yet I'm honoring them. I'm, I'm giving honor to them as going, wow, you're excellent. You're an amazing actor. And, and if only we could have you come into our church and become a Christian, because then you could really share God's word. Wow, we could really, uh, you know what that person would become? If they became a Christian, they would be persecuted instantly and they would not be able to have the testimony that we imagine them being able to because Hollywood would shut them down. But the people that can have the best ministry to others is a person that actually has been like the prodigal son, who's been the person that has been filthy, that, that we wouldn't really notice, that we think that, hey, that person is not really someone we want in our church. I don't really think that we really want a lot of those people here. But Jesus said, to those who have been forgiven much, they love much. And who do they love? They love the forgiver. They love their judge. They love Jesus. Jesus is the judge. We have four judges that we've looked at. There's the judge that is the Saul the judge. He's walked around Jerusalem and into neighboring countries seeking out Christians to judge. We see the father of the prodigal son who's a judge and we see his model of a judge. We see the Pharaoh, his model of a judge selecting somebody and elevating them to a high position. And the fourth judge that we're seeing is Jesus is the judge. He's the one that actually restores us to the position that he wants us to be at, no matter how dirty we are. So this is an illustration of how the church should actually see the sharing of the gospel, the faith that we hold when someone comes into our midst 
and we see the rich person or the poor person, we are supposed to be generous with them, with the word. We're supposed to be sharing the word to everyone without partiality. James chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We see a picture of this in the parable that Jesus tells of the unforgiving servant. If we turn to Matthew 18, 23 through 35, this is how Jesus paints a picture of what the uh, kingdom of heaven is like. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling, and he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And what is the main message of the word? The main message of the word that we are standing faithfully next to is that we are sinners and that God sent his son to die for us, right? And we are supposed to take that message that we've received as being forgiven all of our sins, we're supposed to show that to others. We are supposed to be not judging other people. We are supposed to be giving them the message so that they can receive the forgiveness from God. Let God be the judge. It's really easy for us to nitpick. I find myself being kind of critical from time to time. I read the word, I follow it, and I feel like, okay, I'm secure in God's word. I'm doing it right. Oh, but those people over there aren't quite following God's word. I'm going to go over there and poke my finger in their eye. But, but I've got a massive log in my eye yet. God's not done with me. I still have lots that God is working on. And I'm going to go and poke somebody else's eye and try and get a little speck out of their eye. You know, we need to be generous with gentleness and humility when we present the word of God to other people. It really needs to be that lifestyle that we live. If we are standing next to the word of God and we're being measured by it, 
How tiny is that man next to the word of God? We're pretty small. But the more we show generosity and mercy to others, we grow bigger and bigger because we receive it from God ourselves. We walk around daily going, God, thank you for your mercy. Let me show mercy to someone else. Allow me to show someone else what you showed me. This is a picture of how we are supposed to share the gospel with others. James 2, 14 through 20. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Again, that's an illustration of we've received mercy from God, and that's mercy in a spiritual sense, because no one else is seeing that given to us. No one sees how much God has actually done in our hearts. But when we show mercy to other people, that's external. You can actually see that. That is a work. That is the work of God that is flowing through us to others. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe. Even all the gods of Japan believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? There is going to come a judgment. When we had the typhoon come through here last night, I received two emails from the United States from friends of mine who were deeply concerned about the largest typhoon that has ever befallen Japan. And this narrative that I keep hearing over and over and over about climate change in the world, it's a serious thing. We need to be keepers and protectors of this world that God gave us. We're supposed to take dominion of it and manage it correctly. But sometimes I think the elevation to which people take it is not right. They're fear-mongering. And the concept here is that in the United States, we have people that say they believe in science and that if we don't do anything within the next 12 years, that'll be the beginning of the end. And within 100 years, there will not be anyone that could actually survive on the planet. That is the narrative. That is judgment manufactured by man. You want to know why that judgment is being manufactured right now? Man needs to live up to a standard. They rip out the Ten Commandments out of schools in the United States, and they substitute their own. Oh, no bullying. Oh, uh, don't hit that person. Oh, don't do this other thing. But those commands were already established by God. When the church is silent and doesn't preach the coming judgment, that God is coming, a merciful God is coming, but he is going to be the judge of all mankind. If we don't preach that, man has to manufacture their own judgment, and they come up with crazy talk, like the world is going to end in a hundred years. But as Christians, we know that's not the truth. The Bible says that Jesus is coming back, and he's going to reign for a thousand years. So if you are a Christian, that hogwash science, in fact, it's not science, by the way, 
And anyone that says, yeah, I believe in that, you're believing in it simply because someone else told you you haven't read it. You've never seen those documents. In fact, many of those scientists actually decry it. Suzanne and I just read one of the guys in the United Nations who said that climate change was a real problem, and it is, but the young people today have turned it into something that it is not, and he came back and wrote publicly to the United Nations saying, hey, I think we're going too far with this thing. So obviously, people that say, I believe in science, I'm going to live by science, what are they living by? They're living by a man-made structure of judgment. I'd rather live by God and be an observing scientist. Use science that you can actually see. That's what science is for. Science is not faith. Science is something you observe. I'm a scientist, basically. I got my degree in computer science. And if I said a zero was a one and a one was a zero, there's no way I could actually write software. But in science, People that believe in science, they believe that a man can be a woman, and a woman can be a man, or you can be anything you want. That is not science. That is perversion. That goes directly against the word of God. And God is going to judge that. But for us, I can say that harshly here, because I've kind of been given license for it, essentially asked to, to preach. But when we go out on the street and someone believes that, can we show mercy to them? Because we were in the same place where we didn't know God. Can we share the word of God with them? Can we come alongside them? Can we show them God's word and how much he cares? Can we show them that he is the judge? We're not the judge. We're supposed to love others. We are supposed to be God's caregivers. We are supposed to be God's hands and his feet. We're supposed to be walking alongside Jesus, carrying his word everywhere we go and not judging anyone. This is an illustration that James is saying, yes, the world is in trouble. The world is struggling and having trauma. But the real judgment that we need to be worried about is not some manufactured thing from science. It's the word of God, that judgment that every man needs to come to know. Secondly, there's a second part to this, and there's the part where believers can get themselves to the place where they're too elevated. Believers can get excited about the gifts that God gives and bestows on us. From time to time, we can be participants in showing mercy and praying for others, and we can see miracles happen. These things are happening around the world. We can see that when we pray for someone, they become well. And as the disciples went out with Jesus, they found that they were able to lay their hands on the sick and put oil on them, and they were being healed. They saw that they could cast out demons. But what does Jesus tell them when they return? And they're telling these wonderful testimonies of their trip of, of sharing the gospel and sharing mercy and, and kindness with others. What is it Jesus says? He says to them, do not rejoice in the fact that you can heal the sick and do all these amazing things. But I want you to take joy in knowing that your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's the thing that a Christian really needs to revel in. That's what we need to find joy in. If we look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 through 23, 
In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And then in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, we see another judgment. And this says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he shall sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So we see a picture of that last day in judgment where there are going to be people that have done things for their own benefit and apparently even within the church that can do amazing things, I guess. But then there's others that have lived out their life and they didn't even realize that what they had done had touched a lot of people. And those people, no matter how small they were, blessed the king. And he says, what you did for these people when you went out and shared the gospel as you were sharing it, rather than being like the scribes and Pharisees that are blowing their trumpets and saying, I'm going to do a prayer now, folks, uh, listen to me, rather than that kind of sharing the gospel that Jesus calls whitewashed tombs when he's talking with the Pharisees. We need to be people that are humble and are meeting people where they're at, sharing the gospel and meeting their needs. Luke chapter 10, verse 20. This is the scripture that after the disciples came back and they had been casting out demons and doing these wonderful things again. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. As we take our faith in Christ and we take it out to others. 
not only do we rejoice that our names are written in it, we want to rejoice that when we deliver the message to others, that they too receive that message and their names are written in God's book of life. That's the picture that we should be seeing when we present God's message, that really the joy that we find, and when we're finding joy, we're finding it because we share God's message with others and we take joy in the fact that our names are written in the book and we become brothers and sisters to these new believers and their names are written in the book. This is a simple illustration of a missionary that left Scotland and went to Thailand to be a missionary doctor in a Christian hospital. And this actually happens to be my mom's uncle, my great uncle, who went to Thailand to serve in a hospital that the king and queen of Thailand would regularly come and from their own purse give money for the needs of their subjects that were ill in the hospital. This image here is a picture of my great uncle, Dr. John Toop, standing next to the king of Thailand. And the king of Thailand would make visits to the hospital and go and talk with his subjects that were sick. So my uncle was able to develop a relationship with them with their majesties by letter and by communication with them when they would make these regular visits to the hospital. So as I was going through, I found these pictures in my uncle's stuff. He has passed away. And I was going through a box of his things that we were given. He was a prolific writer. He wrote many, many notes and little tiny letters in many dozen very thick notebooks, kind of a moleskin kind of thing, and very detailed. And so I blew it up so I could actually read his writing. Very pretty writing and amazing stories from day to day. It's just thrilling to go through just looking at his relationship with his Lord and his relationship with the Thai people and his relationship with the king. It's incredibly... It's an amazing blessing to have that kind of heritage. And as I was reading through it all, there was reference to a book that he was given by the king. And in the book, I went through all of his stuff. It's a big, big book that was made by the property owners and commissioned by the king. And it had the king's picture in it and it had the staff of the hospital in it. And when I opened it up, there's 12 letters in there between the doctor John Toop and the king, back and forth by the king's staff, of course. The king didn't actually type it out, but his staff did. It's, it's a communication between the doctor and the king's staff. And here's the letter. You can see it's pretty uh, worn and old looking. It's from September 11th, 1976, I think. So I'm just going to read a little piece of this to show kind of what a Christian's life is like in a foreign country, delivering the gospel to someone else. And as a subject of the king of Thailand, this is how he was conducting himself. He's writing to the king, you will be sorry to learn that the little girl, Ziza, who was in the hospital with skin disease, died last night. I called to see her during the day as she had become unconscious. I'm sorry. 
but she responded to treatment. During the night, she again lost consciousness, and I saw her about 2.30 a.m. However, despite treatment, she died about 4.15 this morning. The Malay man who had adopted her could not spend the time constantly at the hospital, and there had been no relatives with her for a few days. Messages sent both yesterday and today brought no response from the parents. So the local Islamic representative saw to the funeral arrangements. As this happened at the weekend, we have not yet got the financial details worked out, but these will be determined in an account sent to the Secretary of Her Majesty the Queen detailing the use of the gift she so generously made to Sai Moody Christian Hospital for the care of little Ziza. The King of Thailand cares for his subjects, cares for his subjects so much that he comes and visits a hospital. And there's a little girl with diseased skin when was the last time she was touched by anyone? When was the last time she was shown any kindness? Her relatives had abandoned her, but the king of Thailand, he left and his wife left money to care for this child. So when John wakes up, Dr. John Toop, in the middle of the night and goes to her, then is called in, I'm sure he sat down and touched her. I'm sure that touch meant something to her. She's a child that has probably been touched very little. And yet John was there to, to do that for her. So I can totally see that as a picture of God saying to John now, standing before him. And John is saying, when did I do that for you, Lord? When did I do these things? And he's saying, when you did it to the least of these. This is not only the subject of the king of Thailand. This child is not only the king's subject. It's not an earthly subject. This person is also my subject. Every person on the planet is mine, the Lord's. And he cares for every little one of them, no matter how rich and how small or how dirty. This is God's heart for people all around the world. And I see that this represented in this story in this image. I was really touched by it, just reading this and numerous other reports and accounts in Dr. John Toop's diary. So I just wanted to share that with you just as an illustration. James 2, 21 through 25. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. When we read this account, we're only reading an account of two people here, Abraham and Rahab. And James could have recalled numerous other people. But the reason he's focused on Abraham, I believe, is because Abraham is the father of all nations. He's the, the one that God approached and says, I'm setting you apart. You are going to be the father of many nations, but I'm setting you apart. And the scribes and Pharisees, what line did they come down from? They came from the line of Abraham. This is the rich man. 
Abraham is a rich man. Abraham had the ring. He had authority. He had the robes. Then we see another person that James is talking about here is Rahab. And who does Rahab represent? Rahab represents the Gentiles. She represents somebody that is unclean, at least to the Jews. Let's go to Acts chapter 10 really quickly and see this testimony here. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Cornelius was giving his wealth to the poor. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry, and he was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky open up and an object like the great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground, and there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate, and calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. And on the next day he got up and went with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So Cornelius now has all these people coming into a gathering area. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. So he's walking into an assembly, Peter is, and these people are unclean. These are like the dirty people. 
that we see in James. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask for what reason you have sent for me. Cornelius said, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send a Joppa and invite Simon, who is called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Peter is a follower of Christ. Peter is the man standing next to the word. Peter is coming into a gathering that he shouldn't be in according to Jewish law. He's coming to people that are unclean, according to Jewish law. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. This is what James chapter 2 is about. James chapter 2 is, you shall not show partiality to anyone. My word must go to every person to the utmost ends of the earth. Everyone must hear it. Show no partiality. Give it to everyone. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. That is to him the word, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. James 2 verse 26 says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And our faith, we show our faith, how much we believe in God, by sharing that with others. When we've received mercy from God, we joyfully want to share mercy with others. When we receive God's word and find new things in it that we can share with others, we want to share that. This is how our faith is made complete. Our faith is made complete when we go out and share it with other people. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What is this a picture of? A man standing next to God's word. Those two symbols together, as far as I know, have never been separated since the day they were created for the word belief. Those two will stand together. Jesus is the word, and he's going to be with us until the end of the age.